You're listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian. I'm here live and in person with Paul Rizcala. Oh, I shouldn't have said your last name because uh, <laughs> because if I say your last name, people are going to dox you. And Did people not know this before? I don't know. I'm You've said like, enough well, identifying I, I, characteristics. As our, as our audience grows, now I'm worried about... Uh, uh, Paul, you're overestimating the size of our audience. Yeah, I know, again. right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I probably am. But I'm here with Paul, and he's coming here from Waco, Texas, to start the, a new cult. To start, <laughs> we have every time we talk about Waco, we talk about it. You can't not. It's you just, know, it's is it any coincidence though that Waco could be Waco? W A C O. That was whack. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty bad. Yeah. Well, we're here for the jokes, but uh, we're glad to have you here in person. And uh, it's crazy. I mean, uh, you've been. Uh, it's been a while. It's been a while. This but is so much fun, though. Don't you remember like the old days when we first started out? That's right. Midnight with we like s- Diet Cokes. Yeah, it was like Not, during COVID, too. It we was. Like, while the world goes through a pandemic. We started a podcast. We should just start a podcast, you know? <laughs> and it worked. Uh, and it worked out well for us. Yeah, making you, millions of dollars. <laughs> you got married like right after. Yeah, COVID. I mean, I yeah. got an academic job. <laughs> COVID was great for us. It was a net positive. For, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. No one. Oh, see, this is how we get in trouble because now they know your last name. They're going to look you up. That's true. And it'd be weird because, you know, everybody knows you live at 2485 Willow Creek Drive. Willow that- Creek. <laughs> whoever, whoever actually lives there is going to get a lot of hate mail. But, uh, oh, man. Anyway, yeah, we got you live in the studio and uh, we're going to continue our series on orthodoxy by GK Chesterton. And uh, this is a, been a, a, it's been a fun reread. And I think, you know, for me, I like the fact that I can read a book with somebody. I like the fact that you can read a book. <laughs> I like the fact that, I, that, I, that, I, that the fact that I'm literate, that's it. That's it. I like the fact that I can read a book. That'd be funny. I should have just said, that. I'm like, I personally love the fact that I can read a book <laughs> and just like have like silence. But uh, you know that we are living in a time where like basically every single person in the U.S. is literate. Every single person can read. To find someone who's illiterate is like crazy. There's a line from one of the characters, Nick, in I actually don't watch the show. New Girl. New Girl. <laughs> I don't watch it. But yeah, you do. I, I really do. But I do. On YouTube, there's like the best of Nick's moments. And I just uh, know that he's a funny character on it. So I watched it. And one of them, he's like, I don't actually, I don't actually know how to read. I just memorize words. Or no, I, I just, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He like memorized what, you know. What they look like. Yeah, what they look like, which I think is hilarious. But. Uh, Isn't that how Chinese is? Like each character is its own symbol yeah. for, a, for a concept yeah, or I word. Yeah, I guess you're right. So I some people right. so do he's that. Just more, he's just more culturally aware. I mean, there is evidence that we do that. Like if you spell a word slightly off, like you know what the word is supposed to be because you do memorize all the letters together as a unit. It's like uh, you look in like Hebrew. A lot of times they won't have the vowels. It's just just consonants and they just just know what the words are. Same thing. Yeah, the vowels are unwritten. There you go. They're implied. They're unspoken. Just like (laughs) Arabic people are. Everything just un- implied, un- unwritten, and unspoken. <laughs> that is so not true. You're we are like, so in your face yeah. and blunt. <laughs> I'm like one of the bluntest people ever. I feel like though every, like you're gonna say something racist. Probably, no, no. I'm just saying that like most people think about it, it's like, oh, my Italian grandmother says what's on her mind. Oh, my Puerto Rican aunt says whatever she's what's on her mind. Oh, we come from a group of loud Arabic, you know, it's background. True. You know, it's like. Maybe it's just like Americans that are sort of stifled. It's that whole Mediterranean area. 
you know, that but it's like Mediterranean. Kind like of. English people and Europeans. Well, maybe ma mainly the English. They think Americans are too, like they overshare. Like that's like the stereotype that we have of like Mediterranean people. The English have that of Americans. That's hilarious. Like that we're the ones who are sharing too much or just saying things as they are. And the British are like super polite and reserved and all that. Can we get canceled for this? No. There you go. We're just like, these are just stereotypes. I mean, this is fine to talk about because you are a Middle Eastern man. I you going to say, you are British. You are, you're a <laughs> Middle Eastern man. And you are. And I'm Italian. So, <laughs> so, so this is perfectly within the bounds of, of, of uh, proper social discourse. Brian Zhang, the famous Italian yeah, <laughs> renaissance. You, you just reveal my last name. You can't do that. That's how, that's how Siri pronounces your last name to oh, me. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because it's like, I kind of use the anglicized. It's like. Zang. Zang, you know, but it makes it sound like like zinger, like zanger. <laughs> <laughs> well, we better be, we better get to orthodoxy before Let's we start becoming unorthodoxy. Un un <laughs> but um, you guys have been following along, which you should have. I don't know why you wouldn't follow along with the series, but we're reading uh, Orthodox by G.K. Chesterton, really great book, and uh, it's really a series of essays. Mm -hmm. And he's writing in a time when skepticism is kind of growing. And, and yeah. in a lot of ways that he writes, he's almost prophetic. I mean, he predicts a lot of things that are going to happen 20, late 20th century, 21st century. I mean, things just you're starting to see like the um, the first trickles of of, you know, what modernity and new atheism new atheism mm -hmm. all these types of things are coming although what's interesting is i don't feel like new atheism is really a big deal today like that was like a big thing in like 06 to 2010 yeah. Yeah, you know yeah but that's kind of softened a little bit it's really not like the the big thing and it's not new atheism now it's yeah. like the it's more social issue type things yeah and political type things versus new atheism which is, i think that's true which is interesting it's redrawing the lines a lot but um, that's, that's, we could do a whole episode on that. That's episode interesting that. Maybe stuff. We should, maybe yeah. we should. But uh, let's look at the ethics, the ethics of Elfland. This is chapter four of Orthodoxy. And you said that this is your favorite it is. chapter in the book. Yeah. Why, why is it your favorite chapter? The well, because it has the, the best section of the book, which I don't know if we want to go into now, but the section on repetition is one of the most insightful pieces of like literature that I've ever encountered. Well, let's start there. What, 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 okay. What, what, read the quote that you think uh, encapsulates. Well, this is where he talks about, um, we've got two different versions of the book because we have two different versions of our lives. That was very poetic. <laughs> that was. Actually, maybe we should start with this. <laughs> okay. Why does he call it the ethics of Elfland? That's a weird title. It is a weird title. But, all, but when you read through the chapters, you're like, oh, this does kind of encapsulate what he's trying to get at. Yeah. I, I mean, he's, he's kind of giving a defense of fairy tales and why fairy tales have like a, a system of ethics that while we think might look strange actually does mirror our own system of ethics and how like usually in fairy stories or fairy tales you get this um it's basically like what you get in the garden of eden you get like a you sort of utopian world that's available but it's conditioned on one absolute prohibition like you can have this but you can't do this or like in the cinderella story you have the whatever the carriage and like the ball but it disappears at midnight or um like all this sort of stuff like there's always seems to be a condition on something and chesterton's trying to say that look 
good things always come with conditions. You can never have a utopia that is never constrained in some way. And so it's supposed to be just like a general defense of structure, a general defense of conditions, parameters, and ethics it basically helps societies to flourish. Like that that's the main sort of gist, I think. It's really interesting how he puts it together because he kind of starts by going, okay, we I'm really pro-democracy, mm-hmm. right? He says, the first principle of democracy, that the essential things in men are the things that they hold in common, not the things they hold separately. And the second principle is merely this, that the political instinct or desire is one of these things which they hold in common. Mm-hmm. So he talks about, okay, democracy, it's, it's about universality in the sense of like, we all have shared things in common. Right. We can have a common ground. We can work together. But then he says, people think that democracy is the opposite of tradition. Mm. And he brings in yeah. tradition where he says, um, it is obvious that tradition is only democracy extended through time. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Yeah. And he's saying that like, if there's this universal idea of we can work together in society, over time, you're going to find out what works. Mm-hmm. You're going to encode morals and principles. And I mean, even today, like everybody talks about free speech and that maybe that's been abused in all kinds of different ways, but that's a tradition. So if you are going to have a democracy, unless you want to have revolution over and over again, which is mm-hmm. what he's saying is not good. Yeah. You, you want to have stabilizing forces that make a d- democracy work. Right. And those stabilizing forces are things that are encoded in what we call tradition. Right. And tradition can be in customs. It can be in the way that we talk. It can be in the way that we dress. It can be the way that our schedules are apportioned or whatever. Right. Those, it's, it's this organic kind of thing that persists through time that you need for a stable society. And I think what he's doing with the ethics of Elfland, you know, the morality of fairy tales, is mm-hmm. he's saying that these traditions are encoded in these myths. Yeah. In these stories. Right. He talks about Beauty and the Beast. What is encoded in Beauty and the Beast? Um, that a thing must be loved. Before it's lovable. Before it's lovable. Or as we tend to invert at that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's a whole ethic of marriage within that. Right. There's a whole ethic of what it means to extend love to other people. Yeah. And Jordan Peterson, I have to bring up. <laughs> I'm here. What do you want me to say? It's not good. <laughs> Fairy tales are very good. But. <laughs> that was good. Peterson, one of the things he talks about is. And he, the unfortunate thing is he takes a very liberal perspective upon the Old Testament. So I don't think that's good. But yeah. what he's trying to say with things like the Bible, and I'm not going to, I should just backtrack from there. I yeah. don't think his view on the Bible is correct, obviously. But um, what he's trying to say is that in, in all the great stories, in, including religious stories, he's like, he, I can't remember what lecture he was talking about, but it was something like you can't live a whole lifetime and by the time you gain all that wisdom you can't apply it mm-hmm. to one you you should have or whatever so he's saying that stories encode that wisdom so that you can learn it when you're young yeah so that you progress so right. that you don't make you don't need to live 80 years of your life to make all those mistakes it's a way of encoding the lessons of the past and the values and sort of those the, 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 that thing where don't take down a fence unless you know why it was put the, put up yeah. in the first yeah. place yeah you really get chesterton's I mean, conservatism is probably a strong way of putting it, but his his respect for tradition, but also he's defending tradition using secular resources and using yeah. contemporary assumptions. So to his audience and to us today, we think democracy is a good thing. So we tend to think that there is something, there's truth to be had when lots of minds come together. Chesterton's just saying, okay, 
If we think that's true, if we think that there's wisdom to be had in a multitude of perspectives all converging on something, why should we only privilege our time slice? Why should we only privilege the current people alive and not people throughout history? That's right. So he says here, um, democracy and tradition are the same idea. We will always have the dead at our councils. <laughs> so we, we can't help but invoke precedent. We can't help but invoke great thinkers and great lineages of ideas from the past. And it, it like the reason we do that is because we care about multiple perspectives. And so if you truly want to be pro-democracy, you will not only privilege the current time slice and the contemporary mind, you will expand out like globally and also like diachronically throughout history to see what sorts of insights have people converged upon. And like you said, he thinks we can see some of these nuggets of wisdom encoded in stories that we then teach our children. We, we don't have different trans, like it's not a trans, we don't no, have this, different wording, right? You it's the same. Have, yeah. Oh, I, oh, I see where you are. Okay. Because oh. I was looking at, uh, tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. Mm -hmm. It is the democracy of the dead. And I think we lose this if we don't have people marrying and having kids and having grandkids. I think there's something very blatant, I don't know what else to put it, where mm -hmm. you get older and you've got grandkids and you start thinking about the future of society. Whereas if, you're, if you remain single or you don't have any kind of like impact through the generations, that's not at the forefront of your mind. I think what we're seeing in a lot of our culture is the clash of those two things about people thinking about how is this, like I think that the idea of a conservative mm -hmm. is you're thinking generationally at, at its best. Yeah, You're trying to conserve what is good. Right. And the idea is that you want to honor tradition because you might not know why that thing is good at the very point where you need to apply it. Right. It's kind of like you need to learn how to save money before you're making money. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be like, why is this? These seem like arbitrary rules, whatever. It's like, no, just just do it. And then you'll thank me later kind of thing. Right. And he talks about how with uh, fairy tales, he says, I could speak. Um, or where I said, I'm concerned with a certain way of looking at life, which was created in me by the fairy tales, but has since been meekly ratified by the mere facts. Hmm. And it is fascinating how kids, they learn virtues from these magical stories. And I mean, you think about something like Harry Potter at, at its core, Harry we Potter. We don't believe in Harry Potter. That's of the devil. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Harry Potter is at its core, a book about friendship. I think, I think it's a book about friendship and the courage that friendship gives. Yeah. And yeah, you love Lord of the Rings because mm -hmm. you're a nerd and we, th what, we, <laughs> we just invoked Harry Potter. You I don't, no but I don't, to call I don't like nerd. love Harry Potter. Okay. I, I, you know, I watch sports, Paul. Okay. So do I. But so I also, you know, I've got more sophisticated you taste. You watch soccer. Which is, you know, anyway. That's it. We could do another podcast. <laughs> yeah, we could. No, I'm but just yeah. kidding. I, I, soccer's great. Don't, don't hate on me. Harry Potter, friendship, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, but, but Lord friendship. Of the Rings, I mean, yeah, that's friendship. I Heroism, mean, I, courage. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the big thing about Lord of the Rings is the smallest person makes yes. a difference. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the power of humility. Mm -hmm. And I think all those characters demonstrate humility at some point. I mean, I think it's interesting with Aragorn. And this is, uh, sorry, I've only watched the movies. Okay. Just lay off me. I don't care. All right. But. The interesting thing about Aragorn is that he has this like false humility. He doesn't want to take the mantle of the king. Mm -hmm. you know, he's sort of this recluse running around, whatever. 
And uh, he realizes that the true humility is for him to actually assume that position to take that crown. Is, is that is that fair? Or did I, I mean, that, that's what the movie portrays it as, but that's not oh, what the book does. Oh, what's the what's Peter the Peter Jackson what's... introduces like this moral ambiguity to make things sophisticated, but oh. no, like in the books, Aragorn he's a paragon of virtue. So he wants he's to be like, king, like he's uh, he's like he's truly humble, and he doesn't want to accept the position unless it's like gone through the proper channels. And oh, yeah, yeah, he's not like this torn sort of mixed emo morally ambiguous emo Aragorn. yeah i mean mm. peter jackson does a good job but he does throw in which is like a, something that we could do a whole podcast on this but like contemporary directors feel like they have to improve on a story or a character by making them more complicated we can't envision someone who's actually a paragon <laughs> of virtue like no he has to be conflicted and like morally bad somewhere along the line oh, dang well i'm yeah. sorry to have insulted the that's all right Lord of the Rings. It, Our it, thousands it of weird. fans are unsubscribing as we speak it was weird in uh lord of the rings when he started singing aragorn was like just can't wait to be king <laughs> you know what i mean and then he meets the warthog in the i'm the, thinking the, of something else the, the meerkat the meerkat the, yeah exactly um uh, that's wonderful anyway back to fairy tales yeah Speaking of fairy tales. Fairy tales, yeah. But yeah, kids kids learn these these virtues a lot yeah. of times through these fictional stories. And it's interesting what it's almost like it's like a it's a shoe that uh Chesterton kind of grows into. Like it's it's I don't know how it's, it's an interesting metaphor. It. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, yeah, yeah, I'd be like it's a it's a street light that lights up aggressively. <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's a bookshelf that fills up with books. Why are you a New York Italian? <laughs> because that's my heritage. Anyway. Um, it's a shoe. It's a lamp. It's a, it's a shoe. It's a lamp. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I, I think that we could also think of this as like, you think that fairy stories or fairy tales are removing kids from reality. Right. But Chesterton's saying the exact opposite. Say. With the shoe they metaphor. Are, they are helping kids see parts of reality and teaching them that reality is actually good and bad and virtue is attainable and courage looks like this. Um, and so this is something that like, the more you read Chesterton, the more you read Lewis, you see that they are just, they're on the same page about a lot of this. Because Lewis thinks a lot of this is true too, that stories are not meant to be sort of just escapist. They don't help kids escape yeah. from reality. They're taking metaphysical and ethical truths and presenting them to kids in a way that they can understand. So in a sense, like Tolkien would say this, Lewis would say this, Chesterton would say this, that fairy tales are more real than nonfiction in a yeah. sense, because yeah. they're tuning you into higher realities, right. like ethics and metaphysics. And, and he's talking about the people in the scientific age who are kind of poo-pooing maybe the metaphysical realm or right. everything's just materialist. Right. He's saying that you guys are so grown up that you've lost your minds. Mm -hmm. You need to go back to the fairy tales mm -hmm. that there's this kind of sophistication that you move beyond these basic things. And yeah. he goes, if you do that, you're sawing off the branch that you're sitting on. Mm -hmm. Right. And he's saying that you know, he's he much like the, the people who are sane are the ones who are. I mean, it's kind of like I think in the last chapter he talked about how a man goes insane by not by creating a marble statue, but by trying to trying to analyze it or break it down. Analyze or something. square, square yeah, inches. Yeah. Something. Yeah. I can't remember the exact quote, mm -hmm. but what he's trying to say is there's something lost if we just say that these are fairy tales. Mm -hmm. Even when you say that, you're going these didn't historically happen, right? Right? Lord of the Rings is not a historical thing. It doesn't follow the laws of our universe right. at all. It's so a, therefore, it's not real. But even the way you're framing that is you're yeah. going, the only things that matter are the things that are historical, historical scientifically scientific, verifiable. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
and you're missing the metaphysical realities. Mm -hmm. Now, that is not what I think is happening with the Bible. I do think it's historical and all right. those type of things. Right. I think you get in dangerous areas if you try to mythologize the Bible. But but the, that aside, I think even just with fairy tales, he's trying to pick at their cynicism. Yeah. And being like, you, you're not, you should be more cynical of your own cynicism. Yeah. Like maybe you, you've lost a proper way of orienting yourself and in, in, in viewing the world. If you just dismiss these fairy tales, mm -hmm. if you just become too sophisticated and, and it, it is interesting when you say like teaching kids through stories, when we think about that, we think, Oh, it makes people feel emotional and they want to do something like change the world or do activism or something. I think it's a very shallow reading of how stories influence us, you know, yeah. like, like yeah. tell me your story. And then it's just, sometimes it can just be emotional manipulation. I don't think that's the the, the thick reading of what we want to have right. like, with stories. It's it's the idea of that there are a way of using your imagination to lift your eyes higher right. beyond just crass materialism. It's meant to evoke something in you toward virtue and courage, toward yeah. objective realities. Right. I think today when we think about stories, it's just going, everything is about the emotional realities, right. subjectivism. But the best stories, they're about objective realities. Right. It's kind of like training your mind to look at the... Uh, invisible things that don't, don't mean they're not real. Yeah. Things like courage and love and all these things, but they're objective. Mm -hmm. They're they're more real than real in a sense. Right. The further up, further in kind of thing with with Lewis. But it's scary how you can think how stories can be shaping kids today. You know, I think people are like, well, what's Disney showing? I think it, I'm like, there's there's sort of again, there's the super like the not superficial, but the first level of like, what are they portraying for our kids? Yeah. It's beyond that though. Mm -hmm. It's it's like. <clears throat> What are they teaching people to value? Mm -hmm. I mean, you could you could say that a show that's like everything's about your career or yeah. money or social acceptance or all those types of things, that's a message that's being encoded. Mm -hmm. So the power of story is very potent. Yeah. You never realize it when you're a kid, but then you like go back and watch stuff that you watch as a kid. You watch those yeah. later on. You realize actually some of these messages are not great. The like follow your passion, yeah. find the spark of your exactly. life. Exactly. Don't obey authority. It's Authorities a new are age bad. kind of, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, those are all moral lessons that you're teaching kids. You're trying to get them to see the world a certain way. Um, I mean, those are immoral lessons, right. right? Or at least they're, they're honing their instincts in not the right sort of way. And so, yeah, like there's sort of a gravitas that we should take with fairy stories. And maybe this is a sort of exhortation to seek out the good and, you know, be a little more discerning in what we consume or be mindful that kids are going to, this is their primary avenue of learning about ethics and the moral life. And so being a little bit more guarded about that and being intentional about what sorts of um, media and influences they're going to be subjected to. Maybe I'd even put it this way. Today, when you say story, it's mainly told in terms of empathizing with somebody. Yeah. Tell me your story. It's not about necessarily finding truth per se. And I don't think there's, it's necessarily wrong to use story to empathize, but I don't, again, I think you're missing it. It's like the stories, the myth, it's not just to see something from a particular character's perspective. Maybe that's the whole thing with Aragorn. Yeah. People are trying to go like, I want you to, it's not about Aragorn being an archetype to lift us up to see, to pursue greater virtue or that it is possible. He's, a character of empathy that we can find ourselves in and we can be like you too, man. And <laughs> that's exactly what I, I think. I'm not saying that's bad necessarily, yeah. but you can see a sort of shift in the characterization. Um, 
I don't know. That's just kind of, I'm not, I'm, I got to maybe develop that a little more. You got to read the books is what you got to nah, do. <laughs> anyway, talk about repetition. So we, we've talked about ethics of Elfland. He, he's saying that fairy tales encode mm -hmm. traditional values that are good, that lift us higher to the abstract, abstract thing, universal, yeah. I don't know, to objective truths that are necessary for a flourishing society. Mm -hmm. What's What struck you about repetition? Do you have a the, particular quote? Yeah, the, the repetition quote is where he talks about we sort of assume that doing things repetitively is a sign of fatigue, lack of vitality, uh, lack of livelihood, that we, we, we equate variety and spontaneity with life and vitality. Um, and we equate repetition and tradition with, you know, stagnancy and staleness and dryness. Sure. And in this chapter where he's giving a defense of tradition, he's trying to invert that. He thinks that actually no repetition is good like the, the thing that is repetitive is repetitive because it has life in it that it has the structure and the muscles and the ability to keep doing the same thing over and over and over that it, it's easier to do variety because variety is a kind of like degeneration or moving away from structure and so when you see that something is structured it should actually cause you to pause and see well actually Maybe there's something there. The fact that this machine has been moving in the same way, doing the same thing every single day, that should be impressive to us. It shouldn't be, our instinct shouldn't be to say that that's stale, that's dry. Let's go find something that's more, more um, that's doing something different. And so just that sort of framing I think is important. And I'm gonna read this little passage that I think highlights the, the message trying to say, it might be true that the sun rises regularly because he, talk about the sun, never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children, when they find some game or joke that they specially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not because of absence of, not because of absence, but because of life. Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite for infancy. For we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be a mere reoccurrence, it may be a theatrical encore. Heaven may encore the bird who laid an egg. If the human being conceives and brings forth a human child, instead of bringing forth a fish or a bat or a griffin, the reason may be not that we are fixed in an animal fate without life or purpose. And I think that is the most beautiful passage in orthodoxy. Um, I'm not choking up, I just, my throat is dry. Uh, it's it it's a defense of repetition. Like it's just here's the tissue here. Yeah, thanks. Um, this idea that like I think it's sin in us that we cannot enjoy doing the same thing over and over. Like the fact that we need variety is indicative of something wrong about us. That even God enjoys doing the same things over and over and over. The sun rises, all the daisies look the same. Like, and kids, you see that like, when you hang out with kids, like they just take joy in what seems mediocre. But to us, we get bored. And so like that is an insight that there's something about like the child psychology that is pure and not naive, but just like they can see the world fresh and full of color in a way that we, you know, we get bored. And so we have to move on to other things. Um, 
And so I think this is like, when we sing like the hymn, Amazing Grace, and we say, well, we've been there 10,000 years, you can think like, holy crap, 10,000 years sounds uh, like- We've all thought that. It's a horrible thought, right? But I think Chesterton's answer like, here gives us Chris the same Chris Tomlin song over and over again. Gross. Whoa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was such a genuine reaction. You had a very- like, physical reaction. 10,000 years of Chris Tomlin. I felt like physically repulsed. Oh man, Chris Tomlin, look, please. This is no shade on Chris Tomlin. No shade on Maybe a little shade, but not, not 10,000 years worth of Chris Tomlin. Anyway, like how is it that we can enjoy heaven even for 10,000 years? I think that when we have that thought, it's indicative of sin in us that we can't enjoy a good thing. Like we can't, the thought of being in God's presence for 10,000 years is a shuddering thought for us shows us that there's something broken about our psychology. But to the kid who can like be excited about an avocado <laughs> or like, you know, their dad doing the rocket ship and they'd say again and again, do it over and over and over. That's what God's going to do to our psychology in the new creation. God's going to make us able to enjoy monotony the way he does and the way that he has put that in kids that we, because of sin, we no longer experience the world like that. It seemed to me too that he was making the point of to be able to do repetition is a sign of infinite power. Yes. That he doesn't wane. He right. Doesn't, you know, that consistency. And that it's interesting that he's saying our addiction to novelty or our inability to find joy day by day is a fault in us. Mm. Yeah. You know, and that we never, I love what Chesterton does. He, he kind of, I think he's aiming at people who are analyzing everything else except for themselves. Mm -hmm. And he's making us look in the mirror a little bit and be like, you know, and he talks about in a prior chapter how the guy who's who doesn't like any rules or doesn't, you know, like stability, he has one stable rule and mm -hmm. it's always be changing, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, always change, always change. And the person who, I mean, if you know somebody who's addicted to novelty, yeah, they're usually very unstable people. Yeah. And that's the most consistent thing about them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about a guy who it's like, oh, he can't hold a job. Well, that's a consistent rule yeah. in his life. Right. Because of his addiction to novelty or pleasure, whatever. Um, but there's there's that sense. But also let's see what you're saying where it's like part of our inability to find joy is our inability to find gratitude, to be grateful for the ordinary. You know, and I... I just think about all the agricultural metaphors in the Bible, mm -hmm. just the dailiness of life. Yeah. That it there's something about it that reminds us of our creatureliness. Yeah. That we really are created by God. We're not God. We can't control everything. There is kind of a go with the flow day at a time. Each day has enough trouble for its own thing or way of thinking that I think God wants us to have. And also marveling at the fact that God you know, um, I don't know if you want to say he has a childlike wonder, but like, if we want to know the joy of the Lord, we're going to have to fundamentally reshape how we understand yeah. joy and how we view the world. We've got to see it the way he sees it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's almost like a, um, he, I, I think what he's also trying to do is go against the sort of God of the gaps, like the world just works in the system and God's the one who just presses the go button. Mm -hmm. When in fact God is involved with the world, yeah. do you think this is volunteerism? Though what he's saying, or that's that's kind of missing the point of no. I I I don't think he's trying to make a metaphysical point. Just so right. much as saying that God, in the same way that 
God delights in monotony, so too we should be able to delight in it. And our failure, our, our, our inability to delight in monotony is a failure in us. We might think, oh, we're, just, we're so amazing because we crave variety and we're doing all these things and novelty. And Chesterton thinks actually like there's a little bit of that that is sinful because it means we don't have the ability to see all the beauty and glory in the world that is there. And so our attention keeps shifting. He also makes the point that we don't have the ability to see the evil in the world mm. to some extent. I mean, he yeah. says uh, about H.G. Wells, famous sci-fi author, mm. author, author, author <laughs> uh, wrote War of the Worlds. Many moralists have in an exaggerated way represented the earth as wicked. But Mr. Wells and his school have made the heavens wicked. We should lift up our eyes to the stars from whence would come our ruin. Um, I thought that was interesting. You know, yeah. the moralists... They talk about the sinfulness of man, but if you get rid of like the heavens mm -hmm. and you say that's stupid religion, that's stupid fairy tales, you start to th think that people are just good. Yeah. I think you sort of see that today. Mm. You know, it's like why religion gets in the way of the universal brotherhood of man mm -hmm. and, and everybody loving one another. And if, you know, it's all this dogma and people talking about the doctrine of sin being judgmental or all this stuff. And it's right. like, well, if you do that, you actually lose some of the dignity of mankind because yeah. you're papering over, you know, I think in a sense, heaven cast this kind of shadow where you realize the imperfection of the world. This is not it, you know, things it's like that. It's easy to see people as good once you deny sin as a category. Yeah, I know. Because it's just like, well, well everyone's good I mean, now because we don't have this concept of wrong. Chesterton talks about earlier when he yeah. talks about uh, skinning the cat. Yeah. Where he says the, the modern person denies that there's a cat at all. Right. You know? Yeah. And then the idea is being, some people will say, when an immoral action happens, Christians will say that's because of sin. Maybe a materialist would say, well, that's just what happens. Mm. There's no problem. It's just that's what happens when atoms crash against atoms. But there's like a new modern thinking where it goes, well, there's no such, it's not wrong at all. Like yeah. there's no such thing as morality. Who are we to say that skinning a cat is evil? Mm. Something like that. Yeah. But I just botched that. You, you're looking no, like. No, I, I think that that's probably right. I'm trying to connect that with the. <clears throat> with the monotony discussion and I don't have a connection. But well, I'm kind there of, probably is one. No, no, I, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, he talks about the expansion of which I speak was much more evil than all this. I've remarked that the materialist, like the madman, is in prison, in the prison of one thought. These people think, seem to think it singularly inspiring to keep on saying that the prison was very large. The size of this scientific universe gave one no novelty, no relief. The cosmos went on forever, but not in its wildest constellation could there be anything really interesting Anything, for instance, such as forgiveness or free will. Mm. And I think this is the flip side to the wonder where he's using, when he talks about God making the sun rise, he's talking about scientific phenomena, mm -hmm. but he's saying that like the beauty of it is there's intention to the universe. Yeah. Uh, there's a joy behind it. And the people, the skeptics of his day are trying to empty the universe of that joy of that intention while simultaneously discovering all these things about the universe. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, it's like telling people there's more and more corridors of this prison. It's like, great, but it's still a prison. Yeah. Like, what is the wonder of this? Right. It's not a house. Right. You know, and he's saying we can discover more and more about the cosmos, but if we don't have those metaphysical realities of love and forgiveness and transcendence and all these types of things, all we're doing is just showing people there's more corridors to this empty yeah. building. Yeah. You know? So you're, you're taking the magic out of the world. And yeah. so you're reducing it to something that is. So the, the scientific mindset, instead of like further illuminating our concept of reality, yeah. is reducing it to a prison, 
Whereas the fairy tale preserves the richness and the magic and the wonder and the metaphysics. There was a comment by Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, famous mm -hmm. atheist, um, where he was talking about, I think it was in a debate he did. He was talking about the beauty of like black holes or something like mm -hmm. the event horizon. You can see the future and the past and, yeah. or star nebula. I don't know. It was something kind of about space and the weird stuff that happens. And he's just saying, that's, that's, a that's such a beautiful thing. Why do we need God? And the funny thing is it's like, well, he can't help it. Yeah. You're saying that there's, it's a beautiful thing if it's intentional. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just this particular arrangement of light and particles makes you makes your brain release certain chemicals that release endorphins to make you feel a certain way. Yeah. Um, but there's so many intangible things: love, mm -hmm. friendship, you know, courage, empathy, all these types of humility. These are how do you boil that down to atoms? You can't. And I think you see people who take it to its logical conclusion. They go, these are just reactions. These are just chemical reactions that we just do, mm -hmm. you know? Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to be a Christian. I think that's right. important to say, right. right? I mean, you could believe these and just, you know, be a Platonist or something, I guess. Yeah. But he's just trying to move people away from like a reductionistic, yeah. materialistic way of thinking. Right. Where the, all that is is just particles in motion. But do you think that, I wonder today how effective Chesterton would be because he's still operating in a place where there seems to be an understanding of a objectivity. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's just, he's talking to these people who are, there's objectively these fairy tales aren't real. Right. And, you know, I think, but today people are like, yeah, fairy tales are real. I just yeah. have mine, you have yours. Right. And, or not even that, but, right. it's but, a different, but it's yours a different is oppressive now. Yeah. Your fairy tale is oppressive. Yeah. It's or, interesting. It's a different set of objections. I think people would be a lot more on board with Chesterton's project now. But maybe not in a good way. Sure. I mean, the, in a way that I think maybe the strategy is going to have to be different. Because like the modern person doesn't deny the richness of reality. They buy human dignity. They buy all this sort of stuff. But they're secular, right? Yeah. Which Chester would say that they're just resting on the haunches right. of the Judeo-Christian picture. Right. Um, in, in, in Like in taking on board human dignity and stuff like that. But I think what Chester wants to say is that there is something more compelling about like that fits better in the Christian picture. So like you can have that piece of cake, but it doesn't fit well with your perspective. And Christianity offers a non-contrived, non-ad hoc fitting together of all of these things. Why is nature rich, real, intentional, purposeful? Why is it that the moral imagination is important? Why is there right and wrong? All this sort of stuff. It's not that you can't give a story on the secular picture. It's just that the Christian story is much better. Um, there's a atheist philosopher, Raymond Gaeta in Australia, who said like, once the West lost the concept of the image of God, it's not that they no longer had resources to explain human value. It's just that it became a lot more difficult. And so that there is something about the Christian picture that just naturally makes the world rich and, and makes human dignity easy to understand, but it's not as compelling on a secular view. That's sort of my moderate take. But. I think there's also a lot more hostility today, though. I don't think people, I think you could kind of wax poetic about the beauty of the world and, and God having the sun rise every day. And, and even the most ardent secularists or progressive, they'd be like, that's beautiful. Yeah. Like, I also believe in a great spirit in the sky that, right. you know, or that, that connects us all. And so. 
but the social issues are what do the that. social issues yeah, are like there's a repressiveness to right, the, it's like the yeah. ethic is the one that's problematic yeah it's like it's not is there a god it's what kind of god would believe that it's like they, they would grant okay yeah right. there's something greater but that greater thing is like that that god can't impose or like right. restrict and maybe there's something in where where Chesterton makes the point about all these utopian myths have a conditional element that you you know there's a prohibition yeah um that limits are good there might be something there right but i just i, I there's just a curiosity in my head about how chesterton would would play today because we're i think we're facing some different battles but maybe there is some overlap yeah i think at the very least there should be a sense in which at least christians should have this sense of wonder and awe not like a juvenile i think Juvenile is different than childish yeah. or, ch- or childlike yeah. rather. Yeah. A childlike, I think, is a sense of um, of, tr- of trust. At right. its best, a child trusts, right? And he takes things for what they are. Mm-hmm. Being juvenile is being like overly sentimental about it yeah. or not having your wits about you like right. with these types of things. But um, yeah, it does make me though think about how shaping stories as a medium are mm-hmm. um and that that you know there's good and bad with that absolutely i mean there are studies that show that you can give two groups of people one you can give one group of people an argument for why they should give to charity and the other group you can tell a story about a girl in kenya who has to walk several miles a day yeah. to get water and then you ask them to donate to charity and the people in the narrative group always give far more than even if you give them it's it's a super like tight premise conclusion this is why you have an obligation like that's not as moving as the narrative is and that's just something about our psychology that we're moved by stories and i think chesterton realized that and he's trying to say that the way that we acquire truths primarily or most easily is through narrative form and those stories that have preserved for us these kinds of truths um, are like as old as time, as old as human nature itself. And so we shouldn't ignore the insights that they give us, right? We don't need to try to reinvent the wheel. We don't even need to try to come up with new stories with every generation. There's a sense in which the stories that we try to tell ourselves, if they're good, they're just reiterations of old stories. <laughs> if they're new, they're probably going to be bad stories because they're not relying on the wealth of wisdom from past mm. generations. So I, I think that is a deeply insightful point. Do you have well. any more thoughts on repetition? Because I know that that really struck you and I'm, I'm, the more i'm thinking about it, it is a very deep insight that he has here I, I i think it's just it is one of the most brilliant insights in his works that when we leave things to themselves they naturally unravel into variation and novelty so novelty is a result of letting things go but structure is the result of intentionality like being able to do the same thing over and over and over again that should be the mark of there's been effort there. There's been intentionality. Um, and so he's wanting to say like, the fact that all daisies look the same should give us a sort of like, there's an intentionality there. And so the ability to recognize the beauty of sameness and consistency and constancy, he says is a divine power. And we are not strong enough to exult hmm. in monotony. We are too weak. This is why we keep jumping from one thing to the next. And so in a sense, a child's imagination and psychology is stronger than mine yeah. because the child will enjoy the same game, the same book. Like you finish the book 
don't know if you ever done this, you read a book to a child and they say again, like literally yeah. the exact yeah. same 10 page, they want again and again. And I think like we look at that and we say that's a sign of immaturity, but Chesterton says, no, that's a sign that they have a, a way of seeing the world that is so much more rich, just the colors and the images and the words. They love that experience and they don't need their attention constantly like inundated with new stuff. In They're the way endlessly fascinated. Yeah. It is true too. They they take time to notice. <clears throat> they notice the, the peculiarities of flowers or trees or whatever. Yeah. When we're too busy with our lives, we just blow right past them. Right. You know, we're like, we're onto important things. Right. And we miss the wonder of the world. And there's just a cheesy way of talking about this. That's that's like, yeah. like almost <clears throat> irresponsible. But right. I think there's a genuine way that Chesterton is talking about it where it's like, I think one thing would be like, it, practically, what like, how would this look practically? Taking time, enjoying time with friends. Yeah. Sitting down and having a conversation and just letting the conversation flow. Mm -hmm. Like we do all the time. Yeah. You know? Or enjoying <laughs> enjoying you know, like the world around the you. Presence of people and yeah, enjoying the world around you, like walking in nature. Trees, yeah. like skies. Like if if you just take the time to stop and look at the sky. Yeah. And just like that's gorgeous. But we don't see that because we're just, it's just the same thing you, every day. And you hear from people who like are facing terminal illnesses. Mm -hmm. I was like, you'll often be like, it's the little things in life. Yeah. Or, or people who've gone through traumatic experiences, they're just like a nice meal, mm -hmm. a, a calm morning, you know, a nice song. Like it's those little types of things. Yeah. And maybe this is straying a little bit from Cheston's idea, but I think he is, maybe this is part of our technological world too, where we just don't have a sense of dependence upon the world. Mm -hmm. Like we, we impose our will upon the world. Yeah. As opposed to living as part, we're becoming hippies. I feel like it's just like the Earth Mother. Yes, just, but but there's something to that, yeah. which is again why Paul, you think everyone should homestead, and we'd all be better off. Gotta for get it. some chickens. Yeah, exactly. I, I I do think there's. I never made this point before, but there's something to. This might even influence like your your church practice and your idea of what church should look like. Hmm. And we tend to equate novelty with vitality. Yeah, like the church that's always doing something different. Right, right. But like. Chesterton says, no, it's the repetition. Mm. Like, look at the church that's been doing the same thing forever. Yeah. They have the structure and the fortitude in place to have preserved doctrine practice over the course of centuries. Like, that should be a mark of, like, it should be impressive to us. But it should also be a sign of the divine, that there's something yeah. about that monotony that is impressive. Because it resists the natural tendency, which is the unraveling into variety. I know. It's like pastors. It's like thought leader, entrepreneur, social <laughs> innovator, what all this stuff. And I'm right. like, no, I mean, traditionally it's prayer, word, sacrament. You just yeah. do those things and everything yep. else is gravy. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like everything else is just kind of add on, but it's like, yeah, you stick to those three things and it's almost like a trade, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, it's, it's a craft. You just do those three things right. and you're, you're just going out and plowing the fields, watering the soil, all the stuff. Yep. And then you live your life. Yeah. But I think there is this sort of, you know, got to be an influencer, got to be all this stuff, not just for pastors, but I think, I think for anything, it's just, it's just a weird time we're in. Yeah. But it's always been a weird time. Maybe that's what another insight from Chesterton and everything's. It's always been a weird time. It's always been a weird and don't time. don't be afraid to be boring. That's right. That's, that's like right. one of the messages. Well, I hope you guys had a really boring, weird time with us. Appreciate you guys listening in. Make sure you subscribe, share this with a friend. If this helped you out. If you enjoyed this. Spread the word. You can follow us on That'll Preach podcast uh, on Instagram. And uh, yeah, leave a, leave a review and we'll see you guys next week.